If you would, go ahead and take your Bibles and find the book of Habakkuk. We love to play with the pronunciation of the, or yeah, the pronunciation of that word in our house, and I'm refusing right now to say it like I've been saying it in our house all week, even though my, one of my daughters right now is imploring me to say it. We'll just suffice it to say that there's a lot of chewing of the, of the K's um, that we like to do, um, which is probably not good because they'll probably mispronounce the, the word. You can say Habakkuk, Habakkuk, and I'm not going to say the one the way that I say it in the house all week. So I'll just leave it at that. But guys, Habakkuk is an incredible book. It's what we call one of the minor prophets. Now, we have 12 minor prophets, not going to go into great detail here, but generally they cover the time frame or the time span that you have in the really exilic periods after you have, you have David, you have Solomon, then you have the splitting of the kingdoms uh, with his kids. And uh, then from there, basically, man, Israel just cannot find their way all that well. And what God decides to do then is allow their enemies to come and take them captive. He starts with Assyria, then Babylon, then Persia. And through Persia, actually, they're used with uh, King Cyrus prophetically, as Isaiah even prophesied, about Cyrus actually coming in as a Persian king, not Christian by any means, but actually then releasing, basically not seeing the practicality, even though it was part of God's sovereign prophetic hand, uh, on an earthly level, Cyrus just didn't see the, the real need of keeping all these Jews around and basically sent them back to Jerusalem, which was all part of God beginning to again restore his people. But even then, while they regathered there, and that's where you would go back, and this is where our lack of chron- chronological order in our Old Testaments don't serve us all that well, because during that period is when you would have Nehemiah and Ezra and those books and those prophets. And as they then would give ministry over about 20 years of time, Children of Israel grow anxious again, thinking that, hey, we've got walls up. We're now starting to repractice some of these things. Well, 20 years in, they start to grow discouraged and they start to intermingle with other nations right around them to God's, breaking God's commands not to do so. Because it wasn't just the fact that they were stepping over ethnic lines. That wasn't the issue. It was about mixing with other gods. There were false teachings and idolatry that was going on. And the children of Israel had a history of If they weren't going to fight it, they tended to adapt to it, okay? So anyway, in the course of all that, you have the 12 minor prophets that are writing about these different seasons and about these different challenges and difficulties that are going on with the people of God. All the while, there's this underlying current of, look, God, you are good and holy and true, and we are your people. We are your chosen people, and it is through us that you have chosen and seen fit to work out all these things, and yet we never can seem to get traction, We either have really bad leaders or we eventually just give in to this or that. And that's kind of the course of where where it goes time and time again. And then in that first captivity with the Assyrians, what you see is this is when you have the the kingdoms that were split of Judah and Israel. I'm sorry. Somebody help me. Um, We'll just go with that. Um, I didn't mean to go this far with this, but you got the Judah and Israel split, and you actually have Hezekiah during the Assyrian captivity who just makes some brilliant moves, honestly given by God, that protected the two tribes that essentially had held out, whereas 10 of the tribes had really forsaken being faithful. And in doing so, um, there was still a lot of pressure because when Babylon comes in, everybody gets held captive. So it's in this period of Hezekiah having done well and there seemed to be this remnant of these two tribes that had been held faithful and protected that Habakkuk seems to be doing most of his prophetic writing and prophesying because we don't know a whole lot about him, but we do know this about the timing. So basically, end of the Assyrian captivity, heading into the Babylonian captivity, and this is a very tumultuous time. So you can imagine the people thought they were spared But then now they're hearing prophetically, this is not going to be the case. And these two faithful tribes are not going to be spared because God still has a bigger plan. So you can see with all this going on, there's this pressure of trust. What does it look like to trust God? What does it look like for really bad things to happen to chosen people? Now, look, there is no doubt this message today is a 30,000 foot view of, of, of this perspective of what the minor prophets are about, but also what it means to deal with this issue of when bad things happen to good people, so to speak, 
uh, but also resolving, you know, New Year's resolutions. I'm not a big New Year's resolution guy. I'm a goals guy. And so I like to set a, a handful of goals that I know are going to be broken. So it's the same spirit. You know, we set them, we don't do them. We feel bad about that and guilty. And we just copy and paste into the next year. Uh, it's a miserable existence, but I resonate with those of you who live in that. Um, and, and maybe we'll hit a couple of them and I'm glad for that. But in the course of it, I'm not really big into preaching New Year's resolution than sermons unless we can get a 30,000 foot view like this. And so I am convinced this is what we need to look at because I am convinced that in the backdrop of what we're going through and have continued to go through, as well as the missionaries that we pray for on a regular basis, okay, including like those we prayed for this morning, that we need to understand that we do have to press past this idea of trusting that God has a plan. And eventually we have to stick around and persevere long enough until we actually rejoice in the God of that plan. God doesn't desire for you to live a Christian life that simply is enduring, this enduring lifestyle of just gutting it out and just trusting that some plan is going to work out at some point. He wants you to actually rejoice in the one who has that plan. And actually, the more you press into this, the more you realize how many miles that is from Okay, you know what? I'm just going to trust that, that God has a plan. And if, if we're not careful, even though we would say we're not fatalists, you know, and a fatalist is basically, the difference between a fatalist and someone who trusts God's sovereignty is basically someone who would fall down the stairs and say, I'm glad that's over with. That's a fatalist, you know, as if that was just inevitable. You know, someone who trusts God's sovereignty would say, I need to make some better decisions because that one's on me. But, I th you know, thank God the sovereign part would have been if he had died and gone on to heaven, you know, one way or another, it would have gotten him that day. Because God establishes the number of our days according to Psalm 139. But we're not fatalistic. But too often I think that the spirit of our Christianity becomes kind of fatalistic, even if we don't mean to do so properly. And I say that because even those of us who gut it out, who just hold on to this enduring, persevering kind of mentality, which is appropriate. But what are we persevering in? Are we persevering in a trust that God has a plan? And if we're not careful, that creates a distance or maintains a distance between us and really personally worshiping our God. See, God is not interested, to put, put it in a particular way, God is not interested in us merely just hanging out as his people, enduring to see how things work out. He's making for himself a people who are worshipers. So the resolution for us is actually to rejoice, not to make it better, not to do a little bit better at maintaining our Christian perspective or ma maintaining our doctrine. Those things are all essential. But the pursuit is actually to become worshipers or better worshipers, people who literally are worshiping the God who has this plan. And Habakkuk actually gives us a bit of a pattern for how to go about this. And so I hope that this serves you well. Um, you know, for whatever case, I trust that this is just what the Lord has for all of us and has had for me even this week. So in Habakkuk, if you haven't already found it, of course, here I am talking to you so much that I didn't turn to it. But if you go past Nahum, you'll find it. If you make it to Zephaniah or to Matthew, you've certainly gone just a bit too far. Head back to the left or as one of my daughter's Actually, one of my daughters thinks that West is always left, um, and I love her dearly, and she's very brilliant, but we won't just, you just don't want her being an air traffic controller. I'll put it that way. So, okay. Now, um, Habakkuk, if you look back at chapter one, what we're going to look at here is this idea that, first of all, Habakkuk asks a lot of questions, and here's what he does first. In Habakkuk chapter one and two, okay, and we, I am going through the whole book today, so it's a little bit unusual. Um, I've already told my wife, this is either going to be fantastic or awful. There's no middle ground for the sermon. So here we go. Um, realize that God has a plan. You absolutely have to get to this place. In chapters one and two, Habakkuk does assert and realize that God has a plan. He's the God of the plan and he gets that, but he's interacting with it. And that's part of what I want you to see in this process, because I think it's in this interaction that we see how we become resolved this year to be worshipers in the midst of pandemics. And we, and we hope, even though there's a surge, I hope that providentially this is kind of a, a blanket that increases our larger immunity as well as, you know, as we pursue serving one another with masks and vaccines and everything else. That's still in the process. I hope that we will see towards the end of this year, maybe that we're all getting a little bit more built up against these things. In the meantime, though, a lot of people are hurting a lot. We need to help and pray for them. 
But in the midst of whatever, we need to understand that God has a plan. And so really, when you look at verses one and two, he says, oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Now, this seems really bold of Habakkuk, but Habakkuk, even though we know very little of him, we know that just by reading this book that he has written, really this song that he's written, that what we understand about him is that he had a very faithful understanding of who God was, but still trusted God enough that he could ask some pretty serious questions. Now, he wasn't shaking his fist at God, but I do love that we see him asking very honest, very gut-wrenching kind of questions. Like, basically, God, where are you? I'm not seeing it. But what you'll see about Habakkuk is this. He's not one that says, God, I don't see it as if he has tried to form God in his own image. Or when he says, why did good things happen to bad, <laughs> bad things happen to good people? He's not saying that because of some self-righteous perspective of who's the, who those good people are. He's saying it from the perspective of God, you have made covenant promises. God, here is your character. And yet here's the character of the nations that are taking us over. I don't see that meshing. He's asking legit good questions. We don't always see those kind of questions come from an intellectual, spiritual honesty where people are really deferring and defaulting to God's nature. It's more from the position of, I don't deserve this. Do you understand that difference? It's one thing to say, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to good people? But it's another thing when you're ask, asking that like Habakkuk is from the perspective of God's character as opposed to what I think self-righteously I deserve. Same question, completely different reasons, different angles. And I think that you'll see that God in his patience and loving kindness responds very well to followers, worshipers of him who ask really hard questions, really difficult questions, even emotionally charged questions, but still are trusting that God is still going to be God, whether I get the answer or not, because I don't deserve to have all the reasons why. And so as Habakkuk goes through this, he is questioning God. It's not sinful to question God. It's not sinful to even have a complaint against God. It's only sinful to do so if your motivation in doing so is from a predisposition of self-righteousness and basically just demanding something of God that he hasn't promised in his word that he would give you. Habakkuk's working out circumstances in light of what he knows has been revealed in what he had as the Pentateuch of a faithful God. The first five books of the Old Testament. In verse four, he says, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Man, I mean, that's really tough language, strong language that he's using in prayer to God. He's beating the pillow, trying to figure out why is this happening and why is this going on so long? Now, God does begin to answer in verse 5. He says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. So he starts right off the bat by saying, look, first of all, it's, it's not unlike how he deals with Job. You know, I feel bad for Job. Job went through so much. And it took a long time for Job to eventually say, look, God, what is the deal? And if you, it's around verse, uh, chapter 40, 41 or so in, in Job, where, I mean, God slams the door pretty hard on Job after just asking a few questions. You know, with the, where were you, Job, when I flung the stars into the heavens kind of door slam. It's not unlike that same thing here where he's basically saying, look, Habakkuk, I'm going to give you a little bit of perspective. He's not doing it in a mean way. He's not doing it in a condescending way. It, technically, it's condescension that God Almighty of the cosmos and of the not cosmos would actually even speak to a puny human. Technically, that's condescension, but he's not saying it in a condescending way. But he says, look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. So again, there's that perspective of helping us understand that we're not, the, we don't have the corner of market on what we know that is actually all going on around us. And this is actually, to me, a very gracious thing from a loving father to tell a child in a, in a calm way, yes, but to say, look, you don't know all that I'm doing. You don't know all that's going on. And, and in fact, there, this is a way of saying, humble yourself and trust me. But this is 
this is a few verses into, it's a short book, but it's still just a few verses into three chapters. But you can see the beginnings of this. God does not slam him for asking hard questions, even making almost what sound like accusations. But then when he begins to answer, initially he says, okay, first of all, get perspective. I'm God and you're not. This is part of our resolve going into this year. We have to trust the God that has a plan and that that starts with he's God and I'm not. Okay? Now, if you go on then, a few verses down, he says, he says in verse 9, they all come for violence, all their faces forward, they gather captives like sand at at kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh they laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it then they weep then they weep or I'm sorry then they sweep by like the wind and go on guilty men whose own might is their God I mean God himself is saying in his answer to Habakkuk I see what you're seeing even better than you do I know there is evil I know these countries are evil I know the Assyrians. I know the Babylonians eventually and then eventually whom he's not even mentioning though but I know the Persians as well. God knows these nations and he knows what they're doing even in ways that I mean it's not as if he's on you know Habakkuk's not on social media being able to see what's going on on the other side of the you know his world to see just how vile these nations really are. It's all experiential for what he's going through and God is saying look I see and I see even better than you do. That's part of us, again, trusting he is God and we are not. But that's not enough to dissuade Habakkuk from going on. In verse 12, he says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So again, remember, he's asking this question based on what he knows of God's character, not necessarily that I deserve better than this, just that in a sense, God, you're holier than this. How can you even be patient with people like this? who are clearly ungodly, who are clearly against you. They're idolaters, they're haters of you. How can you do this? How can you even stand to do this by your nature? Well, God graciously answers again. We're now going to chapter two. In chapter two, he says, verse two, and the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. I love that perspective. I'm not going to go into great detail, but there's a whole lot in that phrase. So he may run who reads it. Record these things. Record what I'm about to tell you so that it serves other people who come after you that they may be able to basically, essentially continue in the race. It's beautiful insight into the Old Testament. It's beautiful insight into the purpose of the Old Testament to instruct the 21st century church. I like that. That was a good musical. Inter- uh, that was cool. And he goes on, he says, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death. He, is never en- he, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. And then he goes on in, in verse 6 to talk about the Chaldeans who are the Babylonians. Okay? And they're, they're stirring up. They're about to start their captivity. And so God is saying right off the bat here with Habakkuk, he says, look, I know who they are. He says, shall not all these take up their taunt against me with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who, who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. He goes on and says in verse eight, because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Verse nine, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high. This is what God has to say about the people that are about to take Israel captive. Again, Habakkuk, I see, 
I know these people that you're in the midst of now. I, I see these people, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, who are about to take you captive coming up soon. I see them. I know them. You need to understand that this, essentially God is taunting these nations that he's about to use to capture his own people. This seems almost abusive. But what God is saying is, you're going to have to trust that there is a bigger plan in this as far as his covenant plan and redemption. But eventually what he gets to, and you'll see it, is he goes far further to say, but not just trust my plan, trust me. And not just trust me though, worship me. But don't just worship me then because at some point their captivity will end. Worship me now knowing that you hear the drumbeat and those feet and those marching soldiers coming at your door. Worship me now. Oh, it seems hard. But it does help to know God sees this. It won't last. Remember what he says at the beginning? He says, if you don't see it happen yet, just wait. Just wait. So basically, to recap real quickly, to realize that God has a plan, Habakkuk does question God, and he questions God on the basis of his character, not on the basis of what he feels like he, he's deserved, he deserves. And he says these things, and yet God answers initially by saying, look, I see, I know, there's much more going on around you than you possibly can even understand for yourself, and that you certainly see, I am God. Habakkuk comes back, okay, but these people are really, really bad. It's vile. People are going to die. What is going on here that we have to go through this? And then God comes back again and says, look, I know what's going on, but not only do I know what's going on, I know what's going to happen to these very people who are going to be your captors. They will be judged. But it's not going to happen in a timeline that's very pleasant for you because I have a greater plan still. Hard to see, impossible to see for most. But you have to stay with it and keep going. And what he basically ends up saying here as he, as he moves on through the end of chapter 2 is that, verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So what does that say? And that, that is where, to me, and Gordon, I was thinking about you this week. Um, I mean, I think about you a lot, brother, but I mean, not like in kind of a weird, friendly way, but just, you know, just in the sense of this is the foundation for him writing. This is the foundation for to think about God's placement, where God is. God has not moved. Your whole world around you, under your feet, can feel like it is shaking. God is still where God is. And he sees in greater detail, and not just detail in the moment. Remember, God is infinite. God is not bound by space or time. When God sees, it, it's not really a past, present, or future. God sees the whole for all that it is. So not only does he see what's going on with you in your point in time, and that's not to make it insignificant. It's just to put it in perspective. But not only does he see that, he also sees the whole for what it is. All for what's going on in that moment. Yes, globally, right now, if we, if we looked at it right now at 10, 19, our time, take that timestamp around the world, God sees the whole bit, everything going on in detail. But also he sees it in light of not being bound by any clock, or calendar, era, eon, millennia, sees the whole thing. And God is still seated. Nothing, none of this has caused God to slip on that throne. None of it. God is still on the throne. Let the earth keep silence before him. And in a sense, I think this is where he is saying in a very kind way, but even personally to Habakkuk, He's not telling him just, you know, shut your mouth. He's not saying that. He's saying, let everyone be quiet and listen. And this is a transition for Habakkuk. So you can ask your questions. You can hear God answer. You can ask your questions. You can hear God answer. But then at some point, you're going to have to stop and remember, God is still on his throne and let that sink in for just a second. Because as surely as we realize that God has a plan, and that is part of it, but too many people stop there. Okay, God's got a plan. Okay, let's just gut it out and endure. But you would be short a very whole significant chapter in the book of Habakkuk if you did. Because what we see here is that means matters. 
trust that how God goes about doing what God is going about doing matters. That's part of a transition from God, I trust that you have a plan to trusting the God that has that plan. You have to lose the, and it's not, it, it's, it's human on the most global level. I think that perhaps it's, it's very Western on a particular level with us, this idea of pragmatism. Whatever it takes to get the right answer, whatever it takes to get the right policy, whatever it takes to be in the right, or basically whatever it takes to just win. Just whatever it takes. And as long as it's your team, then you'll diminish whatever rules or laws or, you know, penalties, whatever it takes, you know, however small or big, that it took to get there. It just happens to the opposite side. If it's not your team, man, you will cry foul. You will cry injustice to, to whatever end. Because too often we are riddled with this idea of pragmatism. And God is saying, actually, how I go about things matters to me as much as what is coming about. Children of Israel, the Exodus, looking, none of us ever look in our maps anymore, hardly at all, unless you're in a really good, great Bible study. But go ahead, look at the journey at some point. There's, there's I don't know of too many A to B practical distances that were traversed during that 40 years of the Exodus. They were so close in year one. To the promised land? You, you just can't even look at the Exodus and not think that what God is doing in the development and the character and the growth of his people is just as important to God as where they're going to wind up. That's part of the transition. Once you resign yourself to that, you're not done, though. But you're on the way to accepting the fact that God has more for me here than just the win or the end or the promise. God has for me himself. That's what he tries to capture in the lives of his people in the process. Means matters. A reminder of God's place in man's condition brings the redeemed to at least be patient, to shut their mouths, and to praise him in the meantime. And that's where we go in chapter 3. So I will say actually in stemming off of verse 20 that I would say this, heading into this, that we do. We realize that God has a plan. That's clear. But we also have to rejoice in the God of that plan. And that's Habakkuk 3. But really for me, Habakkuk 3 starts in verse 20, which we just read. So I would say this, rejoicing begins with seeing. Again, you can resolve yourself to say, I'm just going to make it through. I'm going to trust that God has a plan. But knowing that God wants you to be a worshiper is totally different. Or it's totally more, I'll put it that way. So realize he has a plan, trust it, but then go further go further. See that God is seated on his throne and nothing can cause him to move. So rejoicing in the Lord of the plan, in the God of the plan, it begins with seeing rightly. God has a place. He is holy and he is sovereign. Man has a place and he is utterly dependent and in awe. Isn't that what he's kind of set? And I don't mean this in a, a sneaky way, but isn't that kind of how he's already set it up with Habakkuk? First question, God's first answer, look, Habakkuk, I see even if I told you, you wouldn't believe everything that I'm seeing. It's even worse than you think. <laughs> but again, God is God and I'm not. Habakkuk asks more specific questions about his character. And God says, oh, it's even worse than that. But I'm even going to, I'll let you in on this. I'm going to taunt the Chaldeans and I will bring judgment to the Babylonians. But I'm going to use them, these horrible, terrible people. But they're going to be used for a reason. Habakkuk doesn't have to get it, even understand that whole thing before he heads into worship, which I think is a really important thing the scriptures don't say here. Much like we often see in the Psalms when David goes from asking questions to being in great fear, probably in a cave somewhere being chased by Saul, but then before the end of that Psalm, he's rejoicing. We don't see a lot of reason to think that the circumstances have changed. We don't see anything in here where Habakkuk goes, oh, yeah, I totally get that. Okay, let's praise now. No. He says, okay, be quiet. Sit in silence in light of what you're seeing right now, which is I'm on my throne still, and that hasn't changed, and you're still completely and utterly dependent upon me. Let that sink in for a minute, and now let's go. 
because there's more to be done. And that's, where he, that's what he does. God's place is holy and sovereign. Man's place is dependent and in awe. So this is where in chapter 3, this rejoicing begins to persist. But look at how it persists. It persists much of the same way that his resolve to just endure began, which is basically through prayer. Please understand, this whole book is essentially praying and singing. It is a communication between man and God. But if you're going to move from just simply saying, God has a plan, I'm going to trust it, and actually become a worshiper in the here and now, not even understanding that plan, if you want to become that person, a person of his who is a rejoicer, in all things and in all circumstances, you have to keep praying. Don't stop. Don't stop praying just because you've come to this realization of, okay, I'm good. God has a plan. I don't really like it, but I'll trust it. And then you go on, make your plans. And that's not all that he has for you. He has for you to be a worshiper. And it's going to have to persist through consistent, constant prayer. O Lord, I have heard you, verse 2 of chapter 3, the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. And then he gives some specific accounts. And he describes those accounts in verse 4. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Verse 6, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Verse 10, the mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. Just speaking of the sovereign creator control of God Almighty in the midst of great tumult. What is happening here? What is happening here is in the midst of this persistent praying and not really having all the answers, you know what God is doing? The Spirit of God is reminding Habakkuk of all that God has done in the past. Habakkuk is stepping out of his present circumstance just long enough to remember, you know what? God has been faithful before. Even in his very frail humanity, his short dash of birth to death, he's remembering enough from stories that he has heard from of old of how God had been faithful to do a work. And that is the God that he is trusting. He's not resigning himself to say, oh, you know what? It's going to work out just like that. It's going to be fine. No, he's saying the God that did all that, the God that did work it out, or even if there was great difficulty, that God is still this God now. Why? Because verse 20 of chapter 2. Because God is still on that same throne doing the same stuff that that God does. And I can trust him. So part of this is his praying to persist in this and to press beyond just a resignation to accepting God's plan, to being a person who rejoices in the God of that plan, is praying. You adore him for what he has done and who he is. You do make supplication. You do ask God to do the same. It's a very biblical prayer. God, you have done this before. Do it again. But what I love about this is that it underlines, it underlies all of chapter three, which is all of this is put to musical rhythm. It doesn't mean everything has to be song, but you do start to understand that someone has made a transition when they're able to go from just facts and figures into something that goes into something that people are going to remember. That's why they put it into song and rhythm to remember these truths. He is being so profoundly affected by what God is laying out before him in this moment is that he is starting to understand that this is truth that needs to occur for future things like a future Babylonian captivity, like a future Persian captivity. And even for those who then are delivered from that, and again, he's not seeing all this, but he knows that this is who God is and this is who we are. And this is such a universal principle that in order to go from people who are resigned to trust God's plan to rejoice in the God of that plan, I need to put this down in such a way so that people remember it and sing this song. In the midst of this song is this beautiful connection that he makes between wrath and mercy. And it's at the very beginning in verse 2. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. A God who is holy must show wrath against unholiness. But because God shows great love, we also have to remember that actually all of us deserve God's wrath 
And the fact that he shows mercy to any, it's not quantifiable. It's the fact that there's any is infinitely merciful. We all deserve God's wrath. But God graciously determines to remember mercy. I mean, really look at it historically. And this isn't getting into, um, you know, some kind of overly interesting or to some non-interesting details about the history of Israel and what that looks like for future, uh, you know, for, you know, the revelation and end times and all this stuff. But just, just if you look at it, guys, there's just no reason for Israel to even exist. There's no reason except God has just simply done a preserving work among a people over and over again. And especially at this stage, because this is who the Messiah comes out of. Even here, there is, there is no reason for them to exist except God has preserved them. These are magnanimous, huge world powers that have overtaken them in the Assyrians. Even bigger were the Babylonians. Even bigger were the Persians. And even after all that went by, and you have the intertestamental period, you know who you have? Alexander the Great and the Roman Empire. There is no reason for there to be any identifiable people at all called Israel. None. And that's not me making a statement of God's preserving work and what it looks like in the end times. That's just simply me saying God in his plan is bringing forth a remembrance of mercy in the midst of wrath. And he does so by preserving a people that he has promised these things through. It is a miracle. A bonafide miracle. So he prays about the nature of God, that this is who you are, this is what you do. But then he also prays about his works of justice and mercy. He, he talks about his works in the past, reminders of the, what God has done by written record and in history. And really we can fast forward this to what he has said when he says to put these things down on a tablet so that other people know this stuff. If you look in 1 Corinthians, don't look, I'll, let me just read it to you. But in 1 Corinthians 10, 9-13, It says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now that reference is a little bit odd sounding because he seems to be referring back to the Exodus generation and yet he's saying that they are testing Christ. Okay? That's Paul in Corinthians. But the bigger point is what he's saying here. Now these things happen to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Why? Why would he say that? He's not just saying that because that is a principle of pride. If you think you're doing okay, you're you're about to hit it and hit it hard. He's saying that because we have evidence written in the past of how these things go. We have to learn with the things that have been written down, how they were examples of the things to come. And for us, it's things that have already been, which is Christ coming and being raised from the dead. And now we're awaiting his return in his kingdom. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest lest he falls. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Now guys, don't misconstrue that. Because he's talking to people whom he's already said, this is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God regularly, people have taken this and taken it to mean God won't give you more than you can handle. I mean, there's enough of us here who, have, who could raise our hands if I were to ask you, how many of you have ever had something happen to you that was more than you could handle? You know, you, you would kind of laugh at that, at that response that some people say, don't worry. You know, it's great. It's great for little Instagram pictures and, and you know, kind of faded coffee cups with you know, staged open Bibles and everything. God won't give you more than you can handle. Oh, yes, he will. But he is able. He won't give you more than what is the ability within you, which is Christ. So when you are tempted because of really difficult prevailing circumstances, I would ask you by perspective, are the Babylonians knocking at your door? I mean, maybe in some metaphorical way, but actually we're not in that yet. We're not facing that kind of tribulation or trial just yet. And yet God was persistent to say, I am the one who shows mercy in the midst of wrath. And really part of it too was for him to understand, for Habakkuk to understand that this is on the tail end of God just having said what he's going to, his perspective of the Babylonians. Do you know that in the same moment that God is able 
to show wrath to the very people that he is using or the very circumstances that he is using to help his people understand better his mercy. I'm not near a good enough parent to do both of those things at one time. I don't multitask all that well. God is able at the same time to remember all of the judgment that will befall the Babylonians while at the same time he is using that evil and vile nation to actually purify and purge and bring out of his people true worshipers, which is a mercy. Guys, we have to not just trust that God has a plan. We have to trust that God is able within that plan to both remember that he is holy in his wrath and he is merciful to us and he is able to do both at the same time. And at some point, this will all work itself out. Yes, but what am I left with? I'm left with right now. And that's where, that's where Habakkuk winds up. Because as this thing gets really personal, he says in verse 16, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. That is a powerful verse. The truth of all, this is, this is not promoting an emotionalism that we should be adapting, okay? This is not moving us to more, you know, kind of charismatic responses to truth. Although I think many evangelicals that, that you know, probably could use a, 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 an ounce of more charisma here and there. But the fact is, this is a physiological response to the truth that God has been reminding him of, uh, reminding him of in the midst of prayer. He's praying regularly. He is persisting in this. And it's now gotten to the point to where right now, not in the future, right now, he is both trembling at what's to come, but he's trembling before the God that is in control of everything that's about to come down. Stay in the truth long enough via prayer until you start to transition from, here's what the circumstances are. I get it. God has a plan. Don't really understand that plan, but I do trust it. Let it go all the way until you realize, why is this thing not completely chaos right now? This is the God of the cosmos. And when you realize that's who you're praying to and you start to tremble, you start to have a hiccup a little bit in your spirit about what it means to be talking to God Almighty who can strike down nations, much less somebody who even asked him the wrong question. You then get closer to being someone who can worship in the midst of all this difficulty right now. Not, well, one day, you know, we'll be able to worship. No. One day when the pandemic's over, we'll be, no. Everything that God causes or allows in the moment for his, for his people is to produce in them worshipers now, not just in the future. But it's a difficult road, right? If we had time to go through all the details, we'd see just how difficult this road is for Habakkuk. And of course, anybody that really knows anything about Habakkuk knows that it's, about, it's really all about 17 through 19, but you, you needed to feel what, what backloaded 17 through 19, because this is the end of his song and the end of his book. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold. And there be no herd in the stalls. Again, agrarian societies. In fact, Habakkuk's name actually means fruit. The fruit of the vine. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will. There's the resolve. That's why this is resolve to rejoice. I will rejoice. And it's present. It's active. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. He knows that God has saved him now because positionally... He is one of God's own. But he also trusts in the future realization of this salvation when there are no more captors, when there's no more need for any more songs of future hope. It's all being realized. And again, that's part of when we know that we've become worshipers in the moment is that we are thankful for what God has done in saving us now, securing for us a position that we don't see yet. And that somewhere in us is this hope that he still has a plan and he's come. So you still come back to the plan part, but you know that it's because you're going to see God. That's why you have hope. It goes from just relief of the difficulty to the realization of the God who got you through all that difficulty. That's when you become a worshiper now. 
God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Then to the choir master with stringed instruments. So this beautiful song of worship for Habakkuk was put to rhythm and rhyme so that people would remember the truths of what he had gone through in prophesying about the coming of the Babylonian captivity, coming out of the Assyrian captivity in the midst of all this difficulty that he went from questioning God to resolving that, yes, you do have a plan to going and becoming a worshiper who can write this amazing passage that has carried so many people through. Most people know nothing of Habakkuk except that verse and they couldn't even remember that it's 317 through 19. And, and, and most, it's almost impossible to get it out of context as far as it being completely misapplied because it means things are not going to go well necessarily. I'm still going to praise no matter what happens. That's awesome. But until you realize what's all happened from 316 all the back, way back to 1-1 and the depth and the gravity and the weight of what was going on at his time and the process that he went through of going, I trust you, God, you have a plan. Two, I rejoice in the God who has that plan. That you go from this grit, gritting out, and that's what I'm afraid of a little bit with 317 through 19, that people who quote it without understanding the book of Habakkuk is, they're saying, look, let's just endure. We're going to praise. And it's almost like praise becomes mere duty. It's okay when praise is a duty, just not all the time. When you persist through prayer, when is the last time your knees trembled before the holy God that you prayed to? When is the last time that you quaked in the moment of as, as difficult as things were, that God was still greater. That you looked at Scripture and you gazed upon Him still seated on that throne. I hope it's been soon. I hope it's been recent. I hope it's been even today. Again, it's not the pursuit of emotionalism, but it is the pursuit of saying, I'm not just one who intellectually resigns or assigns that God is the God of the plan. I'm the one who is anxious to meet with his people to worship the God who is going to work these things out for his glory right now. Resolve to rejoice. Don't stop with just gutting it out. Rejoice. Do you have conditions on your praise of God. Well, if we do, then we know that we're not there yet. God, I will praise you if you do this. And even if we're not gutty enough to say that out loud, you know it in your heart whether or not that's the case. And sometimes we even mean it from the standpoint of, God, I will praise you. I look forward to the day that I will praise you. You need to ask yourself, but why not now? What is different? Because God's character is the same and God is still on the throne. That is enough, regardless of what's going on in our sphere, for praise. So ask yourself, do you have conditions on praising God? The second thing is, do you really want God's glory on display? Because Habakkuk started out by saying, you know, God, with your character, I don't see how this meshes up. But he also certainly wants peace and favor for his people. But ultimately, he starts to see as, as his knees quake at God being on the throne. He starts to see this is about God's glory. And I have to trust how God wants to glorify himself. Do you really want God's glory or do you want circumstantial favor? Sometimes, maybe rarely, those two things go together. But there's a whole lot. It's, it's basically, the, uh, you know, how, how rare it is for someone to be incredibly healthy and incredibly wealthy and incredibly humble before God. God doesn't give that gift to a whole lot of people. Some, for sure. And I'm not saying you can't have that. It's not a caste system, but I am saying it's difficult. For most of us, God has chosen the means of some measure of suffering for his people to know him better. And then lastly, how's your praying and your singing? I think that's really part of the litmus test on whether or not we're praising God now. Do you war against what's going on in your own soul with praise, with prayer? Or are those things that have gone by the wayside heading into the new year where it's been filled more with fret, more filled with getting information from internet, from social media, from news outlets, instead of praying, instead of praising, finding reasons to be skeptical of what either God is doing or what God's people are doing rather than 
knowing that you have reason to praise. You have a God to pray to now. God, I pray that you would help us in this. I pray that you would help us to be those who would ask ourselves, are we conditional at all in our praise? Do, do we, even if we weren't to say it, are there things that we think need to go away or need to happen in order for us to praise you? God, it is, that is an indicator that we're not seeing this rightly because in that verse 20, it says so clearly that you are still on your throne and we are to be still and quiet before you. So Lord, help us to do so at the beginning of this new year. As surely as circumstances have given a resurgence of so many illnesses and, and the like, yet we, we are still in circumstances that force us to think, in a sense, more lofty about what it means to give you praise. That it's not connected to circumstance because no circumstance changes your position on your throne nor alters your character. You still are a God of wrath and you're still a God of mercy and you are worthy to be praised. And God, I pray this too, that whether it's primary or secondary, but I pray that there would be something in this that provokes us to pray, to be people of prayer, not just for prayer requests, but to recount in prayer the good and great things that you've done, the awesome nature of your own character, to persist in prayer, knowing that the end result is not going to be our understanding of what's going on. It's not going to be even that we resolve that even if we don't understand God's got this, no, that we're going to go all the way until we just basically don't stop praying until our prayer becomes a song. Let that be us. Let us be a model of that in this community, in this region. Let Milford Bible be the people who will pray and pray through things until our prayer turns into song. May it be done for your glory and your name's sake. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.